Muhammad. What are we going to do with Muhammad? Muhammad, as you know, is the paradigm for all of Islam. All Muslims must look to his example. All Muslims must look basically to his life and what he says concerning how they're to live. There's not that much in this book uh, concerning how Muslims are to live. Therefore, they have to go back to the Prophet himself. And of course, Muslims want us to accept him as a prophet. Muslims always come up to me and say, Mr. Smith, uh, we accept Jesus. Why don't you accept Muhammad? Well, as a Christian, we have to make an assessment. We have to come to some conclusion concerning who we choose and who we accept as prophets. And there are a number of things that we can do. First of all, one of the things that I do is I ask my Muslim friends, why do they consider and what is it that they believe gives Muhammad the authority to be a prophet? What are the things that they point to? What are the things that they can help me with to, so that I can believe or that I can accept that he is a prophet? And of course, they say, first of all, that, um, well, there is a supernatural witness that proves that he's a prophet. There's these internal witnesses. Uh, they would say that, according to the traditions, when he was a young boy, two angels came down, opened his chest, took out his heart, washed it, put it back in, closed his chest. That, therefore, gives him an authority as a prophet. The problem I have with that is that particular tradition uh, comes from two to three hundred years after Muhammad's life. It was written in al-Buhari. Uh, I'm not sure I can accept it. I don't know if any Muslims really consider, uh, would assume that I would accept that kind of tradition. It's not revealed or referred to in the Quran. And um, obviously, that's, that's all that they can come with. It's not going to be very convincing. They say, well, a prophet must prophesy. Therefore, Muhammad prophesied. And I said, when? And, I, and they say, well... If you look at Surah 30, Ayah 1 to 4, Muhammad prophesied that the Byzantines, which were up here, would be defeated by the Sassanids here, that they would come and defeat them. Now, according to Surah 30, this would have been revealed around 615, 615, while Muhammad was still in Mecca. We know that the Sassanids defeated the Byzantines in 628. So that's about 13 years later. But more than that, we know that these two great powers, the Byzantine and the Sassanid power, the Christian and the Zoroastrian powers, were always battling back and forth. For 200 years, they were battling back and forth. Sometimes the Byzantines were on top, sometimes the Sassanids were on top. It wouldn't take uh, too many people, too, much of a, uh, too difficult for them to summarize that it was about time that the Sassanids now control the Byzantines. In fact, most people at that time, during that period, assumed that the Sassans were going to take over and defeat the Byzantines. But it's a 50-50 chance, isn't it? Huh, with that kind of odds, I would love to go to Las Vegas. Ah, you'd win hands down. So that's not really a prophecy that we're looking for. What about miracles? Because that's the other criteria that all prophets must do. What miracle did Muhammad do? Now, Muslims will point to Surah 17, Ayah 90-93, uh, and they'll... Uh, point to the challenge that was given to Muhammad concerning this very thing. And then they'll point to that, that there is a reference in Surah 54, Ayah 1, which talks about the moon being split, but it doesn't give you much information other than that. You have to go back to the traditions. You need to go back to the Hadith again to understand what was going on here. And according to the Hadith, Muhammad supposedly split the moon, had the two halves of the moon come down to the earth, and they were placed on either side of a mountain. And that, therefore, was his miracle. And you scratch your head and say, hold on a minute, okay. 
I'm not going to question whether or not Muhammad could or could not do that, because if he was using the power of God, God can do anything. I'm sure God could split the moon. That's not, uh, that's not difficult for me to surmise. The question that I have and the problem that I have is if this did happen in the 600s, in the 7th century, if Muhammad did split the moon, bring them down on either side of a mountain, don't you think someone would have observed it? I mean, that's a pretty big object. The moon is enormous. If you're going to bring it down on either side of a mountain, it's going to have an effect on the Earth's rotation. It's going to have effect on its waves. For goodness sakes, it's going to blot out the sky for half the world's population. Why had no one noticed it? That's the problem I have with it. There's no record of any moon being split whatsoever. Now, many Muslims, once you start showing them exactly the ramifications of what they're saying, they usually go back on that. So what is the miracle that Muhammad did? And usually, in desperation, they'll hold up this Quran and they'll say, this is his one miracle. Well, by that they mean, here is an illiterate man. We know that because in Surah 61, Ayah 6, it says that he was illiterate. It also says that in Surah 7, 157. An illiterate man, how could he write such beautiful poetry? How could he write such elegant prose? Well, it's not that great and beautiful once you start to read it. But for Muslims, they believe this is beautiful. They believe it cannot be equaled. And therefore, they believe it's the best piece of literature, bar none, at any time, in any place. And if that is the case, how could an illiterate man write something so great? Well, the question I have to that is, did he write it? You've just, they've just got done telling me that he was illiterate. So he didn't write it at all. So who did actually write it? Who actually put pen to paper? We know it wasn't Muhammad. We know it was not God. So who was it? Well, we do know that there were a number of Qurans written. We know that there was one Quran. In fact, the one I have in my hand here, this one, which is the canonized Quran, the one that was canonized in 1924, this is the Kyrene text, which was supposedly derived from uh, Zaid ibn Thabit. Zaid ibn Thabit was a scribe. He was basically a secretary. He wasn't a prophet. He was given the responsibility to write this down in 623, uh, 632 sorry, to 634, immediately after Muhammad's death. That copy was given to Hafsa, one of the wives of Muhammad. She kept it under her bed. About 20 years later, during the time of Uthman, so we're talking about 650, that copy was brought back out again. Uthman then had Zaid ibn Thabit along with three others, Zubair, Alas, Harith, the four of them, rewrite it. So what we have in our hand today is a rewritten copy of the original copy of which Muhammad had nothing to do with. Rewritten by four individuals, none of whom were prophets. That's just one of the codices. We also know about another codex that was, became very popular in Damascus. And that was the codex of Ubay ibn Qabs. We know of another codex that became very popular in Baghdad. So you have one codex that became very popular up here in Damascus, one codex became very popular here in Baghdad, one codex became very popular here in Basra, and then one codex that re was retained down here in Medina. This one by, in Damascus be, uh, was the codex of Ibn Qabs. The other one that was very popular in Baghdad was the codex, as we know as Ibn Masud's. And the other one that became very popular in Basra was that of Ib, uh, Ibn Musa's. So that's four different codices, four different cities, none of them agreeing. In fact, according to Arthur Jeffrey, who's done study on the different codices, he said there was more than just four metropolitan codices. We know as many as 15 codices that existed at that time in the 7th century, just from looking at the traditions. 15,000 differences between them. Is that the miracle of Muhammad?
when they can't even agree what he said or what, he, what was revealed to him? Certainly you can see there's an awful lot of problems with that quote. And certainly I would like to ask if this is his miracle, I would venture to say this is more Zaid ibn Thabit's miracle than, than, than Muhammad's. Give him credit. He's the one that wrote it. He was the one that amassed it, brought it from many different quarters, bought it, got it from people who had memorized it, others who had written it on leaves and on bones and on bark and on pieces of stone. And that's what we have supposedly in our hand today. So I still question the Muslims, where is that miracle? In fact, the Jews questioned him this. The Jews, we read in Surah 2, Ayah 118 to our 119. The Jews in Surah 17, Ayah 9093. When they questioned him, Muhammad responded in Surah 637 and also verse 124. And also Surah 13, Ayah 7. And also Surah 17, Ayah 59. In all these cases, every time he was questioned whether or not he could do a miracle to prove he was a prophet, every time his response was, Hold on a minute, why should I perform a miracle? The prophets before me, they perform miracles, you didn't accept them, you're not going to accept me. Not much of a defense, is it? And this is all we get from the man, supposedly the greatest of all prophets, who cannot even perform a miracle. So then they say, well, there are other criteria. The fact that he brought all the tribes together. The fact that he created, not created, but he reinstituted this great religion that has always existed from the time of Adam. That was his one great work to prove he's a prophet. But in all these cases, you can see Muslims are trying desperately to try to prove he's a prophet. Some Muslims tell me, the reason we know he's a prophet is because the Quran says he's a prophet. And I say, okay, well then, how do we know the Quran is authoritative to say that? Well, the reason the Quran is authoritative is because Muhammad says he's, it's authoritative. I said, well, you've just got done telling me that the Quran gives him authority, and now you're saying that, they, that he gives the Quran authority. You're just going in a circle. That's an internal authority. What outside of the Quran? What outside of Muhammad? In fact, where is there any prophecy of him? supporting the fact that he was a prophet. Who outside of himself said he's a prophet? Because basically what you're telling me is that there's only one man in history. Only he himself made that claim. Now, as Christians, we do have criteria, and we've done this already before, but let me just remind you what the four criteria are. The four criteria for prophethood is, first of all, that a prophet must be in a prophetic race. And we know that that prophetic race was instituted there in Genesis 17, in verse 19 and 20, when Abraham asked God, what about my son Ishmael? And he said, I will bless Ishmael. He will have 12 sons. They will have 12 tribes. They will multiply through the earth. But my covenant, my covenant is with Isaac. And then if you have any doubt... Go to chapter 22, verse 2, verse 16, and verse 22 of chapter 22, and you will see that God three times tells Abraham to bring his one and unique son, Isaac. He doesn't even mention Ishmael at that time. Though Abraham had two sons, as far as God was concerned, he only had one son, and that was Isaac. So it's pretty obvious to God that that line, that prophetic line, had to come through Isaac. The Quran even agrees with that. In Surah 29, Ayah 27, it basically says, For it is with this people, Ibrahim, Isaac, and Yaqub, it is they who are prophet and the book from which the book comes. So it agrees with the Bible on that one point. And if you have any doubt, just take a look at all the prophets in this book. I ask, remind my Muslim friends, just look at all the names of the prophets. Over 25 prophets, 19 of them all come in the prophetic race of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Four of them, we don't even know where they come from. Uh, they may be Zoroastrian, we don't know. No one's done enough research. And only one of them, the other one, Ishmael, is the only one that comes in the Ishmael. I'm sorry, Muhammad is the only one that comes in the Ishmaelic line. So you've got a real problem here. 
Muhammad cancels out on that category. Secondly, everything that a prophet says must correspond with what has been said before. God doesn't contradict himself. He doesn't say to one prophet something and then completely contradict himself later on. No, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you look at the Bible, you will see there's 1,500 years of revelation here written by over 30 different authors in three different languages on three different continents, and it all agrees. There's no contradiction between one prophet and the next. That's the beauty of the Bible. And suddenly we have this book here that contradicts it right, left, and center. It's full of contradiction, is it not? Take a look at who, whether it's Abraham, whether it's Isaac or Ishmael. Now, the Quran doesn't say it's Ishmael. It only says the son of Abraham. But most exegetes and most Muslims believe that that was Ishmael that was up on the mountain there to be sacrificed. Certainly, what we do know is that Abraham, I'm not sorry, that God is not there in the Garden of Eden. They take that, they excise that out of the story of the Garden of Eden. And once you excise God out of that story, as we see in Genesis 3, verse 8 and 9, you pretty much eradicate almost everything else the Bible's going to say. Because the Bible is very clear that the God of the Bible enters time and space, does, does impact on human history, comes over and over and over again, and speaks with, eats with, wrestles with humans. In this book, God does none of that. God does not contradict himself. But most categorically in this book, this book takes Christ off the cross. This book completely throws him off the cross. If you don't have Christ on the cross here, then you cannot say it's the same revelation. You cannot say it's the same prophet. Prophets do not contradict themselves. Thirdly, a prophet must have something to prove he's a prophet. Now, we've already gone through that earlier tonight. Uh, he must do a prophecy. Well, we know the only prophecy he did was that battle that was going to happen many years later, 13 years later. That's not a prophecy. No other prophecy that we can see in the Quran. And he did no miracle. So that eradicates him. That's three problems with Muhammad. And the fourth one is he didn't even know God's name. Every prophet knows from what God they come, that what God they represent. It's as if I were to come to your country, and I was going to come as an ambassador from the United States, and I'm going to come to your country, and I'm going to say, I am now the new ambassador of the United States, and your president or your prime minister says, okay, and um, what's his name? I said, well, I don't know. Is it important? I just represent the president. He says, you're the ambassador, and you don't even know your president's name? What kind of ambassador would I be if I didn't even know the name of my president? Well, that's exactly what Muslims are telling us when they say Muhammad came representing God, but the name they have given him, the name that he used, is not the name that we read in the scriptures. It's not that personal name. The only name we see in this book is a generic name, means basically the God. Anybody could be the God, Allah, the God. The name we're looking for, the name we must find, is the name that God gave to Abraham. God gave specifically to Moses when Moses asked for that name. In Exodus 3, when he said there in verse 14 and 15, what is your name? So when I go down to Egypt, they will know who is it I represent. And God gave him that name at that time. And that name is Yahweh or, or Jehovah, depending on where you put the vowels. Muhammad never knew that name. So what kind of a prophet is he? If he doesn't even know God's personal name, every prophet knows that name. Every prophet used that name. 6,823 times we see that name in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus appropriated that name. That's the name he used right there in John 8, 58, when he said, before Abraham was, I am, Yahweh. There it is. And look what the Jews did. They picked up stones as if to stone him. Why? Because he had dared to use God's personal name. Muhammad, if he's going to be a prophet, he's got to know that. At least know that name. And for heaven's sakes, use it. Nope, nowhere. Not once. 
So categorically, we, we apply the test to Muhammad. In every case, he fails. Now, the next question we need to ask is, is he a specific prophet to the Arabs, or is he a universal prophet for the whole world? Now, what we do know is when you look at the Quran, in Surah 2, Ayah 119, in Surah 14, Ayah 4, in Surah 17, Ayah 93, in Surah 26, Ayah 195 and 196, and continue on, Surah 27, 91, Surah 42, 7, and Surah 43, 3, Surah 46, 12, are you getting tired? Ayah after ayah after ayah after ayah after ayah. Can you see a whole litany of ayahs here specifically say that this is a prophet for the Arab people in the Arab tongue bringing an Arab revelation. It seemed to suggest very clearly that this prophet is for the Arab people and only the Arab people. Only do we, when we get later do we find in Surah 33, Ayah 40 and Surah 34, Ayah 28 a suggestion that he is a universal prophet, which seems to have been added much later. That we don't know. We cannot prove that. What we do know is that you do have these two different clarifications as to what prophet he is for. Is he for the Arab people? That seems to be pretty clear in the Quran. Or is he a universal prophet? Well, we need to ask the question, is he a prophet for us? Is he a prophet for the Jews? Now, you know the story of what happened in 622 when he moved up there to Mecca. I'm sorry, to Medina from Mecca. When he moved up there in 622, he tried to make an alliance with the Jews there. And it worked for about two years. In 624, that alliance was breaking down for one very good reason. They asked him the same question that I'm asking tonight. They wanted to know whether or not he fit the four criteria of prophethood, and he canceled out on all four. And so, therefore, they rejected him, and he rejected them. So by 624, after the Battle of Badr, where he went with 300 men, and he attacked over 1,000 men from Mecca, defeated them, came back victorious, he then turned to the Jews and said, Why did you support me? And the Banu Qurayza, I'm sorry, the Banu Kainuka family, he then threw out of Medina, set them up packing to the north. A year later, when the uh, Meccans came to revenge against that attack, and you have the Battle of Uthud, which he actually lost. He was gravely wounded, almost killed. Came back to Medina, angered by having been wounded. He blamed the Jews again for not supporting him. The Banu Nadir family were thrown out of Medina. They were sent up packing to Khaybar. Two years later, we have the third great battle. And we have the Battle of the Trenches, which was a great trench that they dug. No one can get across. It was a stalemate battle. Muhammad came back to Medina, not having won, not having lost. And he turned to the last remaining Jewish tribe, the Banu Qurayza family, the largest Jewish tribe there in Medina. And he took all 800 men in one afternoon and slit their throats. Took all the women as concubines for his men and the children as slaves. So let me ask you, what do you think the Jews say about that today? What that tells me is that within five years of his movement to Medina, see, Muhammad was not from Medina. Muhammad was from Mecca. He was a guest in Medina. And yet, within five years, the three Jewish tribes, the three main Jewish tribes that lived in Medina, who had been there for hundreds of years, they were the ones that were actually natives of Medina. They were either thrown out, executed, taken as concubines, or as slaves. Well, we have a name for that. We call that genocide. I would like to ask Jews what they think about that. I've never seen a Jew that's happy with that. I wouldn't be if I were a Jew either. So certainly Muhammad is not a prophet for the Jews, not after what he did to the Jews in Medina. What about for us as Christians? Is he a prophet for us? In Surah 2, Ayah 120, in Surah 3, Ayah 28, in Surah 5, Ayah 54, it says this, O ye who believe, take not the Jews and Christians for your friends and protectors. They are but friends and protectors to each other. And he amongst you that turns to them for friendship is of them. Verily, Allah guideth not a people unjust. 
Well, what is, how does that make you feel as Christians? They're not to take us as friends. And if they take us as friends, they are one of us. That seems to suggest that they, he's not a prophet for us. Is he the seal of a prophet? Is he the greatest of all prophets? Well, this is a curious one because Muslims always believe he is the best. What about the other prophets? What we do know is that all the other prophets did sin. They all had sins. Even the Quran admits that they're sins. In fact, there's a whole litany of sins that each one of the prophets um, committed, and I have it in my paper. But is he the greatest amongst them? Well, we know that certainly every one of the prophets that came before him, whenever there was a jurisdiction, whenever there was a law, whenever there was something, a supposition that they wrote or that they brought to the people of Israel, every one of the prophets also lived under that jurisdiction. They lived by the laws they wrote. They were always consistent. They did not have one law for the people and another law for themselves. They did not elevate themselves above their people, except Muhammad. Muhammad says in Surah 4, or is revealed in Surah 4.1 uh, uh, in the Quran, that one man can have up to four wives. How many wives did Muhammad have? He had 12. He didn't even keep to his own law. Over and over again, you can see, whenever, they was a, whenever there was a battle, at the end of every battle, one-fifth, 20% of all the booty went to Muhammad, elevating himself again. His wives, nobody was permitted to see, and that's why in Surah 33, it says that the women must be covered up. It's his wives specifically that must be covered up, and nobody could marry them after he died. In every case, Muhammad seems to have elevated himself over and over again. Did he sin? Absolutely. In Surah 40, Ayah 55. In Surah 47, Ayah 19. In Surah 94, Ayah 1 to 3. And specifically, in Surah 48, Ayah 2. Muhammad, over and over again, asked pardon for his sins. In Surah 48, Ayah 2, it mentions that he has to ask for forgiveness for the sins he has done and the sins he's yet to do. So when Muslims come back at us and say, these were only sins he did before he was a prophet, what are they going to do with Surah 48, Ayah 2? No, Muhammad was not the greatest of all prophets. In fact, one of the things I love to do is I love to do a comparison of Muhammad and Jesus, just in the Quran alone. Looking in the Quran, just look and see whether Muhammad was greater than Jesus. Even the Quran admits that in every case, Jesus comes out on top. Jesus was born of a virgin. Muhammad was just born normally. Jesus, when he was a young baby, was able to speak from the cradle. Muhammad could do nothing when he was a young baby. Jesus... When he was an adult, was able to heal the sick. Muhammad never healed anybody. Jesus was able to bring sight to the blind. Muhammad never gave sight to anybody. Jesus was able to resuscitate the dead. What did Muhammad resuscitate? Jesus was the sinless one, the perfect one, the righteous one. In Surah 19, Ayah 19, Muhammad had to ask forgiveness for his sins before and after. In every case, Jesus comes out on top. Thank God for Jesus. Now, I don't use the Quran for my authority. Be careful. I'm not giving authority to the Quran in saying that. I'm just saying Muslims, because they use this as their authority, if they open its pages and look at Jesus, they will find that Jesus is superior, even in the Quran. Even in the Quran, I go to the Bible, and there I really see the superiority of Jesus. So then the Muslims are, are supposed to find him referred to this, this question of whether or not he can give authority to himself, that he must find authority from outside of him. 
is also brought up in the Quran. In Surah 7, 157 and Surah 61, Ayah 6, it says very specifically that this prophet, this illiterate prophet, that can neither read or write, can be found in the Taurat and the Injil. That means can be found in this scripture. So they've got to go back to this scripture to find it. And they do. They go back to Deuteronomy 18. If you have your Bible with you, let's over up to Deuteronomy 18. Because here's where you will find specifically where, um, where Muslims have found, they assume they have found reference to Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18, and as soon as I get to it, it's going to take me a little long to open it because I have, uh, I have such a small Bible. It says this, Deuteronomy 18, back to actually verse 15 and verse 18 say the same thing. So let me start with verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. I will raise up for them, this is God speaking to Moses, saying, I will raise up for them in the future, Moses, a prophet like you, Moses. And Moses say, aha, here we go. This is referring to Muhammad. Why? Because Muhammad's very much like Moses, is he not? Both Moses and Muhammad, they both were orphaned as children. That's true. Both Moses and Muhammad. Which, which one am I doing, Moses? Where's Muhammad? Here's Muhammad on this side, Moses on this side. So both Muhammad... No, this is Moses on this side, this is Muhammad on this side. So both Moses and Muhammad... <laughs> I'll get it straight. I want to make sure I don't get, get, uh, uh, get it... Um, for the people in the camera. But certainly Moses and Muhammad, they both were able to take people and bring them out of an exodus. That's true. Moses took people out of Egypt. Muhammad took people from Mecca to Medina. The, the what we call uh, uh, Hijrah or the uh, Hijrah. The Hijrah is the exodus that he took these 80 to 200 and rescued them as they moved to Medina. So they both did that. That's similar, yeah. They both got married. That's similar. They both had children. That's similar, yeah. They both created a theocracy. Both Moses and Muhammad created a theocracy. And they both died in, in a relatively old age. That's true. So you can see there's lots of similarities as man thinks. But they don't go to the next part of the verse because the next part of the verse defines it very clearly. It says, I will raise up for you a prophet like you from among your brothers. Why don't they read that second part, from amongst your brothers? Well, how do we define brothers? Go to the chapter right before. In chapter 17, verse 15, it says, Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. There it is, brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. You can't get any more clear than that. He has to be an Israelite. Now, when Muslims bring this up to me, I say, you must define it. You must look at the context. But don't just read this verse. Why don't you continue reading a few more verses? Read verse 19 and read verse 20. They don't like me to do this, but I love doing it. And you need to do that as well. Read verse 19. And it continues to say, if anyone does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name. So this prophet is going to speak in my name. What name? We know that name is Yahweh. I myself will call him to account, but a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded him to say, well, we know Muhammad spoke an awful lot of things that is not relevant to what's over here, so we can see he already start, did a lot of things that were contradictory, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods. Does Muhammad speak in the name of another god? Absolutely. Allah, that's the wrong god. That god is not found here. Allah is a pre-Islamic pagan god. We know that because we've done our study on it. The God, a generic name, but not just any generic God. He is a God that was used by the pagan, a very idolatrous pagan God, because he is basically polytheistic. He has a father named Hubal, and he has three daughters named Alap, Almanat, and Aluza. What in the world have they used that God as a monotheistic God? They got the wrong God. So what does the Bible say? A prophet who speaks in the name of other gods put him to death. It's right there in verse 20. 
No wonder the Muslims don't like me to read in verse 20. We're to put him to death. We're to have nothing to do with that prophet. The Bible tells me so. So don't go to Deuteronomy 18, Muslims. They better not go there because we're going to hang them if they do. We're going to show that this is not the right prophet. He's not in the right line. He doesn't use the right name. And the fact that he uses another name, we're to put him to death. I love it when they take me to Deuteronomy 18. They usually quickly scurry on to the next one, which is Song of Solomon 5.16. Solomon 5.16 Solomon 5, says this. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. And that's the name Mahmud in Hebrew. This is my lover. This is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem. Mahmud, 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 Ahmad, Ahmad. Can you see there's a very similarity between Mahmud and Ahmad. Ahmad is a derivative of Muhammad. Ahmad means altogether lovely. It's a shortened form of Muhammad. It's an adjectival phrase, Ahmed. So what they do is they take out this, I'm sorry, it's a proper noun, Ahmed, the, the lovely one. And they take out the adjectival phrase, Mahmed in Hebrew, take it out and replace it with Ahmed. So then it reads, his mouth is sweetness and love itself. He is Ahmed or he is Muhammad. This is my lover. This is my friend or daughters of Jerusalem. They now have found Muhammad in the Old Testament. But there's a problem. First of all, if this is Muhammad, then did he ever have a lover in Jerusalem? Did Muhammad ever go to Jerusalem? I don't recall that anywhere in his lifetime. I don't recall that he ever went further than the Hejaz, the central part of Arabia. Possibly as a young man up to Gaza, but that is about as far as he went. Certainly he was not having a lover in Jerusalem, so that completely takes out the context. But just look and see who this is talking about. This is Solomon. Solomon is one that has a lover, but here we go. If you're going to take an adjectival phrase, throw it out and put a proper noun in, then you're going to have to do that wherever you find Mahmud anywhere else in the Old Testament. And there are 11 other places where you find Mahmud. I don't have time to read through them, all of them to you, but let me just give you one to show you how ridiculous this becomes. In 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 6, you also have the word Mahmud. So let's take Mahmud out and put Ahmad in and see how it sounds. And it says this, Yet I will send my servants to thee tomorrow about this time. And they shall search thy house, and the houses of thy servants. And it shall be that whatever is Muhammad in thy eyes, they shall take it in their hand and carry it away. Can you see how ridiculous this sounds? You cannot do that to scripture. Don't be messing with my scripture, taking one word out and putting another one so you can find a man that doesn't exist. This is never, was never intended to be an adject, uh, proper noun. It was intended to be an adjectival phrase because in Sa Song of Solomon 5.16, if the author had wanted a proper noun, there was one in Hebrew. He could have put the word hemdan in there. Hemdan is the lovely one. He could have applied hemdan. He chose Mahmud for a reason. And if he chose Mahmud for a reason, we must leave it as so. So then they go to the New Testament. They've got to find Muhammad in the New Testament. And where do they go? Well, they go to John 14 and John 16. Why? Because there you have Jesus Christ. He's about ready to leave. He turns to the disciples. He says, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to leave behind a counselor. And the word is parakletos. Parakletos, which has the vowels built into the word. It's Greek. Greek has the vowels built in. Muslims say that and say, Jesus is leaving. He's going to leave us the parakletos. They take the vowels out and replace it with their own vowels. So instead of, as we would say in English, P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T-O-S, they put P-E-R-I-K-L-Y-T-O-S. Periklitas means the lovely one or the glorious one, which is, again, is similar to Ahmad. Ha, they have found now Muhammad in the New Testament. They found him with a periklitas. So Christ is leaving, they say, and he's going to give us the, the Ahmad, the glorious one who is Muhammad. Well, 
you've got two problems. First of all, those who are making this argument are not, are, tend to be not Arab, uh, are, are, I'm sorry, do not understand that the Arabic, which does not have any vowels, only is a continental, continental language, you can throw the vowels in where you want to, the Dhamma, the Kasra, and the Fatah. You can put it in and add vowels at your leisure, as we do in Hebrew. But you cannot do that to the Greek. The Greek is written with the vowels in place. And if you want have any doubt that parakletos, the counselor, is the word that was intended, is the word that was always there, take a look at the earliest manuscripts. Go to the Sinaiticus, go to the Alexandrinus, go to the Vaticanus, go to the John Bottomer Papyrus, go to the John Rhinans manuscript, all of which I have John there in their text, and read and ask, what is the word that is used in John 14 and John 16? In both cases, in every one of the manuscripts, it is always parakletos. In fact, this word parakletos doesn't exist at all in the New Testament. You won't even find this word anywhere in the New Testament, in any of the manuscripts. But that's the first problem. The second problem is even, even, even worse. When you look at the context of those verses, just look and see what it says. In verse 16 of chapter 40, it says that this parakletos, this counselor, he will be with you forever. Is Muhammad with us forever? Absolutely not. Bingo, he can't be that. Strike one. Verse 17, he will be the spirit of truth. Well, that tells you exactly who this is. It's the spirit that's going to be. Is Muhammad the spirit? Strike two. Verse 17 again, the world neither sees him. Did no one ever see Muhammad? Of course they saw Muhammad. Strike three. Verse 17 again, nor knows him. Certainly people knew Muhammad. And then strike four, the last one. He will be in you. in you. Just stop and think what that sounds like. Muhammad in me? Not only does it sound awful, but it just looks so, shows how ridiculous this whole argument is. If they just look at the context, if they just read on to the very next verse, they will see this has nothing to do with a man. Nothing has nothing to do with anybody in history. It has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit this is speaking about. The Holy Spirit who arrived 50 days later. We know that because Acts chapter 1 verse 4 and 5 basically say as such. It is the Holy Spirit that Christ promised that came there at Pentecost. Muslims need to be careful. They must not torture our text like this. They must not add verbs or, or nouns or take vowels out of here and add vowels there. You cannot do that to our text. To me, that sounds like desperation, doesn't it? In every case, you can see that the Muslims have, done, have basically done, I think, dishonor to our text by trying to find Muhammad there. Muhammad is not in our text. As though the Surah 7:157 and Surah 61:6 do state that, they're going to have to question those two surahs. Muhammad cannot be found because Muhammad was never intended. Muhammad doesn't belong to the right line. Muhammad does not, does not qualify because he doesn't even know who God is. He did nothing to prove he was a prophet. And what he said contradicted with everything that had gone before. God does not choose prophets like that. Now let's come to the day, to the 21st century. And let's talk about the Danish cartoons. The Danish cartoons that uh, caused such controversy last year. All over the world, people were upset. This um, journal, Jillens Posten, there in Denmark, that published those 12 cartoons. Why did the Muslims get so upset? What was wrong with those 12 cartoons? I don't know if you've seen them. You can get up on the Internet and look at them if you want to. Uh, they're readily available. Back, actually, it was 2005 this happened, not last year. 2005 in the summer, these 12 cartoons were first posted there. What was interesting is just a few months later, in October 17th of 2005, Al-Fajr newspaper, in, which is one of the largest newspapers in Egypt, 
republished some of the cartoons on the front page. Nobody got upset at all. No one said anything. Basically, it was there just to show the joke of what they were doing in Europe. But there was one man back in Denmark. His name was Imam Ahmad Abu Laban. He was the one that did not like what was happening. He didn't like that anybody else, no, no one else got upset. So he decided to take on his own crusade. And he, along with one or two other friends, took these 12 pictures, these 12 uh, cartoons, along with three others. Three other horrendous pictures. A picture of a, a very scribbly, very odd-looking picture of an old man holding two children in either hand, and underneath it said, Muhammad the pedophile. But it looked like it had been created by a little child itself. It was very crudely done. Another picture of a, a man with a mask like a pig, with ears like pigs, squealing with his hand behind him, squealing like a pig, saying, Muhammad the pig. And then a third one, a horrendous picture of a man bowing down in prayer, supposedly Muhammad, and a dog coming behind him and having sex from behind. So he took these three pictures with him, along with the 12 that were, had been posted there on Jillian's poster, and he went to Egypt, Al-Azhar University. He also went to Qatar to the Al Jazeera television and showed Yusuf Al-Qaradawi these, these 12 plus the other three. And then he went to uh, Saudi Arabia, to, to Mecca, and to Medina, and showed the clerics there, these 12 plus the other three. And it was the other three that caused the anger, not only there in Saudi Arabia, also in Egypt, but especially on Al Jazeera television, where Al Qaradawi was incensed by what he saw, as well he should have been. I would have been incensed. Everybody would have been incensed with these kind of pictures. And that started the riots all over the world. Now, when... Uh, Iman Ab Ahmad uh, Abu Laban came back to Denmark. He was quite happy with the reaction of the Muslims around the world. He had done his job well. Time magazine wanted to find out where these three pictures came from. And so they went to him and they questioned him, where did you get them? Because there was no published magazine or journal anywhere in Denmark that had published these three. In fact, no one seemed to know where they came from. And so when he refused to say where, when he refused to give any acknowledgement of how he came to have them, they decided to do a little bit of the research on their own. And so they went around and they found that this one picture of the pig, at least, the one with the, the, with, uh, the, with the face on it, came from France. It was done by a, uh, it was a contest that happens every uh, summer in Sur Le Bris, there in France, amongst pig farmers. Pig farmers who squeal like pigs. In fact, if you look closely at the picture, you'll see a microphone right in front of the, of the man with a pig's face. He's squealing like a pig, not intending at all to, uh, to, say, to, uh, at all, uh, to, to assume that this has anything to do with Islam or Muslims. Someone had taken that picture and put Muhammad's name at the bottom. We pretty much know who, who did it. It was this man, Laban, who had done this. He had concocted these pictures himself. He probably drew the first one himself. That's why it looks so crude. And then he assumed that, that people would believe him, and they did. Muslims all over the world believed him. They never bothered to question him. Time magazine exposed him. But to date, nobody has sued Iman Ahmad Abu Laban. Though billions of dollars have been lost in the Danish economy because of those 12 cartoons, it turns out it wasn't those 12 cartoons at all that caused the damage. It was these other three. It was this one man. Now, the question we need to ask, why is Muhammad so important for Muslims? What is it about Muhammad 
that gets Muslims so agitated so quickly. I remember when they had the demonstration there in London because of those cartoons. I went to that demonstration. I asked many of my Muslim friends, why are you here? Why are you so demonstrating? You're nominal. You're liberal. Some of you are radical. Why are you so incensed about these cartoons? We are permitted to do that in the West. We caricaturize Jesus. We caricaturize, uh, character, characterize a lot of car uh, caricature of many different honorable people and famous people, godly people. It's a well-known tradition in the West. Why in the world are you getting so incensed over these 12 cartoons? And what I heard them say was very interesting. They said, Muhammad is the greatest of all prophets, but he's also the closest to us. He is more important to me than even my mother or my father or my brother or my sister. I kept on hearing this repeated phrase. Muhammad is more important to us than anybody else in our family or in our lives. And that showed me something. What I saw happening, and one reason why I think Muhammad has become so important for the Muslims around the world, is because they don't have what we have. See, they, like most humans, want God, God who they can relate to, a God who they can talk to, a God who comes down to their level, a God who relates to them personally, face to face. We've got that in Jesus Christ. We know, and we love Jesus Christ, we praise his name all the time, because he came down 2,000 years ago. Oh, he's been coming all the way through history. But especially 2,000 years ago to do something beautiful for all of us, he came to die on the cross. We have what the Muslims want. They don't have anything like that. There's nothing comparable in Islam. So when they don't have anybody that they can relate to face to face, that they can relate to a God that comes down to their level, they've got to take a man and elevate him to that status. They have done to Muhammad what they claim we have done to Jesus. We haven't elevated Jesus to the status of God. God himself chose to become a man. If anything, they have done that with Muhammad. They have made Muhammad so high that every time they even say his name, they have to say, praise be unto him. Do you notice they never say that whenever they mention Allah's name? They always only say praise be unto him, always before Muhammad's. They've even elevated him over Allah. But I can understand why. Because I love to elevate Jesus. I always love to honor him. Because he was God that became a man. He was God that came this direction, not this direction. We don't have to elevate anybody else, unlike the Catholics who elevate Mary. We don't have to do that at all, because we've already got him in Jesus Christ. What we have, the Muslims want. That means we need to give them Jesus. Jesus. He's a lot better than Muhammad. Jesus who is God incarnate. Let's introduce him to Jesus. Forget about Muhammad. He doesn't fulfill any of the criteria of prophethood. Jesus fulfills all of that and then more.